Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Tech Your Business podcast. Today on the show, we are talking about one pain business owners have. A lot of us, myself included, we start businesses out of excitement, and over time, we realize that probably that's not really what we want to do, or we outgrow the businesses or other responsibilities, or probably the business is just not working like we wanted it to. And a lot of time we just let it go and <laughs> shut it down. Years of work gone down the drain. Today, we'll be talking to a business broker. And we'll be talking about building a sellable business with tech processes and automation because at the end of the day when you build a business you should build it so if at any point you don't want to go ahead with it you should be able to sell it to someone else who can continue from where you stopped so our guest today is david jacobs welcome to the show david thanks peter i'm excited to have our conversation today <laughs> yeah so can you just um, tell us a bit about you and your what you do? Sure. So I've been a business broker for uh, coming on four years. Um, it's been a, a third career for me. When I started my career, I worked in um, uh, Silicon Valley at the large uh, technology companies, uh, Oracle, Siebel Systems, BMC Remedy, and Sousa Linux. Um, and then in my uh, mid-30s, I decided to uh, follow my entrepreneurial passions and um, took over a, a print brokerage. We sold uh, printed catalogs um, throughout North America, um, very much a manufacturing-oriented business. So we did, um, you know, kind of trucks full of paper would be converted mm -hmm. into catalogs. Um, so it was very manufacturing-intensive and... Um, you know, we really provided a lot of value because uh, our customers were spending a significant amount of their marketing dollars on um, the printing and their graphic designers were creating their catalogs, but there was really nobody there that understood the ins and outs of how the, the commercial printing market was set up and it worked. And, um, you know, the largest companies would hire a print buyer, um, but our customers, you know, they didn't buy enough to justify a full-time position. So that was the role we played for them and would really help them uh, find reliable printers. And there, there's lots of them um, that would produce their, uh, their books cost-effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, uh, in my mid forties, I realized uh, with, you know, every, everything was moving online and we had great customer relationships. Um, but the more I talked to my customers say, hey, you know, last year you spent $300,000 with me. This year you spent $150,000. What do we do wrong? What can we improve? And the, the message back was, you know, David, we're still spending $300,000 on marketing. We're just moving more and more to our online store mm -hmm. and uh, just less and less on print. And I realized then, you know, in my mid 40s that um, this thing wasn't going to last for another 20 years and it was time for me to move on. So, uh, um, uh, you know, the business was making some money. Um, I had a lot of employees, uh, many of which had been loyal for many, many years. And I, you know, felt a responsibility not to abandon them. Um, so I, uh, I thought I would sell the business. And uh, it really opened my eyes to how this whole kind of uh, small business world operates. It's, it's very different than what you see on TV and in the Wall Street Journal and places like that. Um, yeah. 
And um, the interesting thing we had is, you know, coming from the software world, um, everything, everything's based on software and that's how you fix things. And every problem is a software solution. And I had done the same thing with my printing business. And um, we had built a software application that really, um, it made a huge difference in our operations. Uh, when I took over the business, we were winning like 5% of our quotes. And um, by the end of my seven years there, we were winning like 83% of our quotes. So um, wow. software was just generating huge value. Um, at one point, I thought about pivoting into a software company, but uh, I realized that, uh, you know, the staff I had was, they knew about printing, but they couldn't, they didn't understand software. So it, mm-hmm. we sold printing and we used the software tool to do it. And um, when I started talking to business brokers about my tech enabled business, which is what I thought I had, um, uh, the people I spoke to, they, they just didn't get it. They couldn't even re- repeat back to me what I described the software was doing. And I thought they're they're never going to be able to represent me in a way that um, uh, is positive and um, creates the right kind of impression with potential buyers because I felt like there's a really a platform here to to build on. Um, yeah. So I ended up selling the business myself, which um, oh man, did I stumble! I I, I made so many bad decisions and mistakes, and <laughs> it took me uh, about two years to get a deal done. But I finally did. It was a great deal. Um, still in communication with the buyer now, and that was that was done in 2013. So it's been 10 years, and um, they they took on my employees, and they all they all stayed until they eventually retired. And um, you know we had an earnout component; we got paid every penny that we were owed. It was just it was just a great deal. And there, I guess, it goes to prove that there are really good people out there, and you just have to find them. Um, Italy, yeah. So, uh, you know, after I sold my business, I kind of um, bounced around Silicon Valley again, um, working at startup after startup. But it's uh, it's very hard after being a business owner to go back and be an employee. So I knew that wasn't working. And um, I was approached by a guy named Raj who had just taken on a new franchise for Link Business, which is one of the four large business brokers. And he wanted to talk to me about setting up a tech practice. So um after a lot of thought and investigation and research, I decided to join Raj. And um, in California, you need to be licensed, so it took me until August of 2019 to get my license. And you know, here I am. It's been four years. It's been a great kind of—I call it my third career. And um, you know, it's a chance to make some money, and uh, also you get involved with people and you get to know them and learn about you know their struggles and triumphs as they built up their business, and then um, you you finish the deal and you move on. So. It's all the the great part of getting to know people without the uh, the staleness that can come from ongoing relationships where things aren't are struggling to work. So it's it's just been a great change for me. Hmm. That's really true. So I'm very curious. This um, software you built for the print brokerage, what did the software do? So it, it did. Um, I guess you know, uh, selling printing is a commodity business, and. Uh, we uh, we went back through and we had great relationships with our customers. I mean, even when we sent in a, a quote, if we would lose it, we would always be able to get them back on the phone or email and say, hey, you know, we sent you this quote. You didn't choose to print with us. What happened? And um, we determined that uh, in the printing business, 5% is kind of the loyalty factor. So, you know, if you quote $105 or $105,000 for a print job and somebody comes in at 100000 you you might get the job if they like you and they trust you. But if somebody comes in at 99,000, you're going to lose because everybody, you know, it's a marketing expense. These are small family owned businesses. 
and anything much beyond a 5% difference in price um, is really where the kind of the loyalty stops and the dollars and cents comes into the decision process. So uh, uh, what I felt was I really had to be able to nail down the price that when I sent a price quote to a, a customer or a prospect, um, I had to know that um, you know my price was competitive with the market. And uh, the interesting thing about the printing market, um, like many other of these uh, loosely, highly fragmented markets, is there's no central database of what a print job should cost. It's, you know, the prices are all over. The vendors have completely different cost structures. Everybody's doing cost plus. And um, coming from a more theoretical, I, if I had access to a market price, I would really have an advantage. So that was the main thing that we tried to uh, accomplish. And uh, I think we did it pretty well. Um, there was one other company that had kind of what we had in terms of this market price. Um, and uh, they managed to go public in Chicago. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of their company. Uh, they had approached us to buy us, which is where I got the idea that, oh, I could sell this business rather than just walk away from it. <laughs> um, and uh, um, yeah, so we had a market price. We would know that, you know, when our price quote went out and then there was all the detail of how do you get the market price. And what I learned is the, uh, the equipment and the printing business is uh, it's highly specialized. So, you know, even a seemingly small change in the design of the book can really change the, um, the kind of equipment that you need to manufacture the book on to be cost competitive. So um, what we were able to do is you could take the specs that a, like a graphic designer would know, you know, the dimensions of the book, the number of pages, the type of paper, you would put it into our system and then the system would find out who had all of that equipment in-house um, mm. and who was also discounting. Because one of the things the printers do, it's such a cyclical business, is that when the uh, when the plant is busy, they don't discount. When the plant has uh, empty production hours, they discount to fill the fill the plant and keep the machines running. So we we track that discounting, and we would find out who had the equipment, and then who was discounting, and inevitably those would be the competitive prices. And it's nothing that you couldn't do manually, um, but it would just require an enormous staff of people and you couldn't be cost effective if you had to pay people a salary to do all these calculations. So yeah. that's what the software did. And then the other piece was, it was just a workflow because um, as you can imagine, there's lots of back and forth and tracking all these documents and you're waiting on quotes and you're comparing quotes and um, we tracked all of that. So that's what it did. It, it found the best prices and the reliable printers and then it just kept track of all the paperwork so that we could work as a team. Because one of the things I always felt was in terms of customer service, when you when you call a business, somebody should answer the phone and they should be able to answer your question, not take a message. Um, mm. So that's what we did. Actually, so that's, um, so basically just saved you a lot, a whole lot of time researching, a whole lot of time making calls and all that. So that makes right. a and, whole lot And we of worked sense. a little different, you know, we... Um, uh, we weren't brokers. We actually had contracts in place with our vendors. So they knew exactly mm -hmm. what we were doing and how we were doing it. Um, and Ooh. we tried to be good partners to them too. You know, when we would get a quote, we would always provide feedback. You know, here's your quote. These are the other quotes we got on the same job. This is how your pricing stacked up. You know, we've won the job, but awarded it to another printer. We lost a job to another broker. It was, it was completely transparent um, mm -hmm. because we wanted to make our vendors better too. Um, and at one point we even got into the paper market, um, because the vendors, you know, in a, these printing jobs, 70% of the cost structure is on paper. And we thought we yeah. could use our same kind of methodology and software to uh, get into the paper market. 
And, uh, you know, we saved uh, a number of our vendors millions of dollars a year on buying paper um, because we would get alerted, you know, I have three train cars full of paper stuck at a yard in New Jersey. Do you know anybody that needs 60 pound number three? And I'm like, uh, I got a guy. In fact, I have a large job going to press <laughs> in New Jersey. Let me see if he wants to buy some cheap paper to run it on and make a little extra money. And, um, you know, frequently they would say, oh, we don't get into paper buying, David. And then three days later, I get a thank you call from the vendor where they had bought the paper. I'm like, okay, <laughs> now we understand how this works behind the scenes. So we, we tried to be uh, uh, good members of the industry too during during our time in there. Hmm. All right. So what's from your experience, makes a typical business unsellable? Um, so, you know, um, most businesses exist to uh, provide income to the owners. And if there's no income being generated, um, it's going to be virtually impossible to uh, sell the business. Hmm. Yeah. And even, I mean, even with technology companies and, you know, you see these um, stuff in the, the tech media, um, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley. The stuff is all over the place out here. Um, it's very rare for a, um, an unprofitable business to uh, to be sold. And when you see it in the paper, that's because it's so rare. For every time you see, you know, some company sold for a hundred times revenue or some outrageous valuation like that, um, you know, you're only getting half the story. It, they might have just sold their user base, and they had hundreds of millions of users that they sold for fifty cents each. But when they write up the article, they put it on the revenue. Um, th there's some part of the story you don't know. And there's thousands and thousands of businesses that are just unprofitable, unable to uh, get any kind of scalable revenue that um, just get shut down. And you don't hear about that. So there's, there's a huge kind of bias in the media that I think mm -hmm. creates um, unrealistic uh, expectations on the part of business owners. Um, you really need to figure out, you know, how can I attract customers and get them to sign or pay um, where, you know, I, it's repeatable and scalable and I can sell to uh, strangers, not just my friends. Um, and then how can I deliver that service at a profit? Repeatable and scalable. So how do you ensure that your delivery, your product delivery, your service deliveries that's repeatable and scalable? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I mean, beyond making money, which is what will attract buyers to any business opportunity, um, you know, the way you make a saleable business is the way that you uh, you build a high quality company. And that's just to, you know, understand and document your procedures. There should be there should be no single person that's so important to the business that it, it couldn't continue without them. So everything should be documented. People should have a general understanding of what their coworkers do so they could step in if somebody, you know, has to take the day off of work or leave early. It, it shouldn't stop the whole process. And I think that's um, that's just generally good management. So even if you don't want to sell, just to document, and by documenting, I mean understand and write down what, what you do and how you do it um, is a really important step. And if you ever do decide to go to market, um, that's what the buyers are going to want to look for. You know, they, they want to see financial statements. You're going to need good records. And then after that is, you know, how do you do what you do? And don't talk me through it. Show me something written down so that I can understand it quickly. Hmm. All right. So for founders who may want to sell their business, probably in the future, what are the most important things that they should focus on right now? Um, 
It depends on the stage of the business. You know, I, businesses kind of go through a transition as they grow. Um, I guess the, the most important first step is to, uh, um, you need well-organized financials because that's the key to everything. And um, buyers are going to look at your tax returns. So, you know, if you're in a cash, like a retail type business with a lot of cash, um, when you walk by the cash register and you put the $300 in your pocket, uh, that's great. And you may not end up paying taxes on that money, um, but you won't be able to count it when you go to sell the business either. That, that money has disappeared. Um, so, you know, keeping accurate uh, financial records. Um, and one of the things we find is that, um, you know, most people are honest and they have an accountant helping them on the tax return. But a common um, problem that people have as their business begins to grow is they bring in bookkeepers and people like that to help just record the transactions and uh, expenses get miscategorized. So while the net income is accurate and the net income is the net income, um, you know, it might have been uh, travel to visit a customer, but it got recorded as a marketing expense. And what this does um, as the business begins to grow is that it makes it very difficult for potential buyers to, um, to understand how to model the business and modeling of the business is going to determine uh, what they're willing to pay. So if they don't really know what your cost of customer acquisition, because you have travel expenses mixed in with marketing, um, mm -hmm. it's very hard to know um, how fast they could grow the business with an injection of capital. So I would say, you know, the number one thing is just going to be to keep um, accurate financial records and to make sure as you bring on uh, people to help with bookkeeping that they, um, they can easily understand how to categorize the expenses correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after that, um, once once you kind of know what you're doing and you know how to deliver the service, um, people usually get to a few million dollars in revenue through the you know charisma and tenaciousness of the founder. Um, and then they get stuck again. And um, usually that's because they really don't have a well-defined marketing process in place. Um, because to grow any business, you're going to have to be able to attract the attention of strangers and convince them that your product is worth buying and get them to sign a contract. And that, that seems to be where people get stuck at the next, the next stage is how to create a repeatable marketing program. Nice. All right, so talking about um, technology, what um, tech tools, popular or maybe unpopular tech tools, do you recommend that founders can implement early in their businesses? Because you talked about, um, documentation, keeping of records, financial and all other records. So what tech tools do you recommend that they can implement to make this easy for them to do? Yeah, so, uh, you know, most people use QuickBooks for their accounting. Uh, it's very common and um, it works fine. And the buyers are, some buyers will even just ask, like, send me that QuickBook data file because they just know mm -hmm. how to analyze it very quickly because they look at so many businesses. Um, uh, you know, a tool like DocuSign so that you can um, keep electronic copies of all your contracts rather than having to go back through paper files or have them scattered around, you know, servers um, can help. A good CRM tool, you know, there's lots out there, but, you know, kind of being able to uh, manage and document, you know, who are your customers, who are your prospects, how long does it take to turn a prospect into a customer um, what does the, the deal funnel look like? All these types of things will come out of uh, a CRM tool. Um, 
Yeah. And then just a payroll service so that you have, you know, what your employees actually cost you with uh, both salary and benefits. I would say those are the the top three or four tools that um, will help keep you organized. Right, so you CRM, the bookkeeping, that's QuickBooks mm-hmm. and the rest. So, yeah. So when, um, okay, you talked about building software for the print brokerage business and for other businesses that might not be technical, they might have a lot of processes. They might have a lot of workflows that would benefit from that automation you carried out on that business. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it, it takes time away from running the business. It takes resources away from running the business. So how much time and budget do you think founders should allot to doing these things that are not bringing out uh, immediate revenue, but that in the future would optimize the business and make it more sellable? Um, It's hard to give a... um... I think it depends where the business is and its evolution and where the, uh, the founder is kind of in their career and their time frame. You know, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're running a business and you're, you're making good money, you're happy with it. And um, you're in the middle of your career and you don't want to sell because you enjoy what you're doing. Then, you know, business as usual, you keep, keep running your business and doing what you're doing and keep making a good living. Um, if you're uh, kind of coming on toward the end of your career and you think you might want to sell your business, then um, it might make sense to spend more of your time kind of building the company rather than um, working within the company. And by that, I mean, you know, getting things documented. If there's uh, critical processes that could be improved through uh, software and automation, uh, then devoting the time or hiring somebody to uh, learn your business, document it, and then get the software built. And it doesn't have to be, you know, this huge um, zero to a hundred uh, software development process. You know, if once the once your your business processes are documented, you can look and say, okay, this is the critical thing that my staff of ten people repeat. You know, each of them does it twenty times a day. So what is that? Two hundred times a day, this process gets repeated. If we hmm. could save just a couple of minutes you know, it would free up hours and we could talk to more customers and prospects. So I would look at it like that. And, you know, you, you try to automate the uh, uh, the big time consuming pieces of your business, like we did with soliciting quotations and comparing the numbers out. I mean, I had a staff of 35, everybody who talked to customers and all the back office, this is all we did. It was hours and hours of everybody's time every day. So, you know, if we can automate that, that's going to free up people to talk to more customers. And that, that's how yeah. I would approach it. And then I would say kind of the final thing is if you have a, a, a profitable uh, but boring kind of business and you're like, mm, you know, I'm approaching retirement age, nobody young is going to be interested in this business. Um, if you could develop some software, uh, that might bring in a whole new crop of younger people that would be interested in running a, you know, a tech enabled business. Your business based on paper or emails is probably not attractive to uh, somebody young like that. But if there's a software application where they say, oh, I can, you know, expand to another city or maybe license the software with um, a little more development work, um, you know, you could really increase the pool of potential buyers for your business. Mm. Mm. All right. So there's lots of, of, you know, what, what appear to be like, there was a guy out here who had a dry cleaning business 
And you would think like, who would want to have a dry cleaner and operate all those stores, all those chemicals? And this guy had a great idea. He would put lockers in the apartment buildings with the young workers who, uh, you know, young single guys who needed their dress shirts pressed every day for work, but they certainly work on an iron and do their own laundry. Um, and his idea was just to put a, a like an Amazon kind of locker in each of these apartment buildings. And he turned what was a dry cleaner into a tech enabled business. And when he sold it, it Whoa. sold like a tech enabled business. It wasn't valued Whoa. like a dry cleaner. So it was very innovative. And um, I just think there's there's lots of there's lots of businesses out there that appear boring at the outset, but with a little thought and creativity, you could really turn them into something very exciting that would attract, um, you know, a very large pool of potential um, buyers. Hmm. You know, I was about to ask you um, for an example or two, and that dry cleaning example really, <laughs> I'm sure it's really get people's. Um, Thoughts. <laughs> yeah. In I mean, you know, like, like my business with the print broking, you know, we, we had, there were no assets, right? It was our relationships with the printers and our relationships with the customer. And, you know, usually what happens when you sell these kind of businesses, you just, you join somebody else for a year and they pay you and then you walk away and they take hmm. over your employees and they take over your accounts and you're left with nothing. And by creating the software, we created an asset that could, um, could be sold. So we were able to, um, you know, actually sell a business rather than walk away. And I, I think there's lots of uh, relationship type businesses or, um, you know, kind of these uh, regional um, service oriented businesses with a little, with a little bit of software and creativity, you could create an asset that could be sold rather than um, uh, just a group of people that you have to walk away from. Hmm. Interesting. So when you look at, um, when we talk of, devaluation one thing people encounter one problem people encounter selling their businesses i think you mentioned it before while well, um, with the print brokerages what they can sell for what they can yeah, that, sell the business for yeah yeah you know if, um i th i think you're in the uk i'm here in the us um we have a, a big website called Biz Buy Sell, and for you know traditional Main Street businesses, which are you know stores and uh, retail type locations, uh, Biz Buy Sell is just an, uh, an enormous resource, and you can go on there and see what other businesses um, sell for in your industry. So you know if you own a bar, or you own an auto repair, or a landscaping service, go on to Biz Buy Sell and see what kind of other uh, companies about your size um, in your industry what the asking price is. And I think that's a that's a great starting point. Um, the uh, the multiples for a service business are usually uh, between three and five times the SDE. So SDE is kind of the net income of the business plus the owner's salary plus any other personal expenses and some financial things that are added back. You can Google the term seller's discretionary earnings and see how to calculate it. But just to set expectations, it's usually between three and five times. Um, the better businesses, meaning, you know, the larger ones or the ones that are growing faster, go more for five, the smaller ones or the ones that aren't growing go around three. Um, you might be able to get a little premium, but, uh, you, you can't get a lot. Interesting. So let's, um, talk about, let's say someone wants to sell their business. Probably they've had the, they've 
implemented tech or whatever in it, or they've done the other things, the other things right, mm -hmm. and they have a business that's ready to sell. What kind of process are they looking to go through? So I would say, you know, let's say that you're thinking about selling your business and you have an idea to uh, tech enable it. Um, you know, you can you can talk and talk and talk about what the software does, but until the until those numbers show themselves in the tax returns, you, you just have a story. Um, the mm -hmm. buyers are going to look at the tax returns. So I would you know advise people if you think you're going to sell three to five years out, and you think you might want to develop some software to try to scale the business, um, it, it's time to start building that and getting it deployed now because you want to be able to point to the results, and the results don't have to be. Um, dramatic right you could have been growing at 10 percent, now you're growing at 20 percent, and that's mm -hmm. you know you've just doubled the growth rate with some software so that would certainly help with your valuation um and once these results show up in the uh the tax returns um a broker uh, or m&a advisor somebody like myself um, there's lots of us out there would do evaluation and that's really just to agree on a starting point so you know i think my business is worth six million dollars or eight million dollars if the broker agrees that's good um, doesn't mean you're only going to sell it for six million. You might find somebody that wants to pay seven and a half. Um, mm -hmm. But once you agree on the valuation, that's the hardest part. And then you you need to get the business um, documented and written up in a a marketing packet, which uh, the industry calls a SIM, which is a confidential information memorandum. And all brokers do this differently, so you can ask for copies of previous ones just to make sure that you know they understand your your business and your industry, and they write it up the way you like it. Um, and I would say all that kind of getting ready and going to market takes six to eight weeks in general. Um, and usually a lot of it is um, just waiting for information coming from the client. And then, you know, I write stuff up and then it has to be edited. And then I send it back to my client for their feedback. And it's, you know, it's a back and forth collaborative process. Yes. But once it's ready to go, it goes off to the graphic designer and gets laid out. It looks really nice um, in a PDF. And then we're ready to go to market. And then it takes... I would say it takes probably eight weeks to start meeting buyers. And some of it is, um, you know, there's time that these markets aren't really liquid. It's not like a house where everybody needs a house. Not everybody has to buy a business. So, um, and then you want to wait for Google to uh, index the listing. So, you know, it can take Google a month. So it's just, it, it takes about two months once you go to market. So, you know, now you're three and a half to four and a half months into this process and you'll start meeting the buyers. And I usually tell my clients that um, you're going to meet the buyer very early, but you might not know it later in the process. Um, so, you know, generally it's it's six to nine months to get a deal done. Sometimes it can happen very fast. Um, you know, uh, uh, the type of client that I really like is somebody who's been through this process multiple times um, where they received, a, you know, a cold call and somebody was interested in buying their business and they went down that path and they furnished documentation and, you know, lo and behold, the business didn't sell to that buyer, which we can talk about at length, why that happened. And I have a blog post on that. But, you know, those sellers are usually fairly organized and ready to go. Um, and I worked with one of those and we found a buyer in two weeks and the deal was done 30 days later. So six weeks, start to finish, done. Um, well, other times it takes longer, and it, you know, takes nine to 12 months. And, um, it, you know, how, how organized is everybody and ready to go? When you're dealing with um, corporate buyers and you know, private equity funds, um, you know because they're in the business of buying businesses, um, they usually are ready to go very fast. They already know who their attorney is. They already have what they need. They know how to do the analysis very quickly. Um, family offices are also a good 
a potential buyer, depending on the dynamics of the business. And they can move not quite as fast, but um, certainly faster than a like a high net worth buyer. Um, and the slowest, of course, is um, somebody needing an SBA, just an operator needing an SBA loan, because the SBA process mm -hmm. can eject another 30 to 60 days of waiting for that loan to be approved. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess the short answer to your question is a business can be sold in six to nine months, sometimes faster, sometimes longer, but um, that's how long it takes. Hmm. Okay. All right. So another thing I want to mention is um, a lot of us, after working in our businesses for years, we develop these sentimental attachments to the business. And like you said, you, um, you had your staff who you didn't want to just let go like that. So how do you find or what can you do to make sure that you, your business ends up with the right buyer that will continue with your vision, treat your team properly and, you know, and let you know your business is in good hands? You know, I would say that it's, um, I'm just kind of going through some of the businesses that I've sold. It's rare for the, the sellers to pick the highest offer. Mm. Um, and, you know, the high, you, you can, well, you can have very high valuations and, you know, there's also deal terms. So it's very rare where, you know, let's say the, the valuation is $6 million where somebody's going to hand you a check for $6 million at closing and you hand them the keys and you walk away and that's the end of that, <laughs> right? There's, there's seller notes, there's earnouts, there's cash at closing, there's all kinds of structures. Um, so it's, it's rare for somebody to do the highest valuation. And I would say that, um, you know, in the end, this is a transaction between people um, and you're going to meet all kinds of buyers and they're going to have all different kinds of personalities and skill levels and uh, values. And um, you really need to pick the right match. Um, and, you know, the that's really up for the seller to decide. So, you know, one of the my concerns when I sold my business, which wasn't a problem because the industry knowledge was so specialized, was um, I wanted to make sure that my key employees that had been with me for so many years were given a chance, right? I didn't want I didn't want to sell the business and have them get laid off. Um, mm. So part of our deal was that they had to be given um, 12 months of guaranteed employment. And I figured that was 12 months is enough time for, the, for my employees to get to know the new owner and the new owner to get to know the employees and they can sort themselves out after that. Um, yeah. And that's, that's very common, especially for... Um, you know, kind of lifestyle businesses where somebody started the business, you know, um, maybe in their 20s or 30s, they've been doing it for 30 years. The employees have been there for 20 or 30 years. They know each other. It's it's not quite family, but almost. Um, I, I think that they, uh, most business owners care about their employees because they realize the reason that they were successful is because uh, these people helped them. Um, and they kind of went through it, the process together. And uh, usually there's some kind of a, you know, a retention, or if they decide to cut the staff, um, the staff has, some, has, you know, gets a year salary or something like that. And that can all be negotiated into the agreement. These are, you know, these are custom transactions. Um, and the larger ones, which is really what I focus on the lower middle market, uh, there's always attorneys involved. So, you know, if you care about your employees, or maybe there's certain customers that have to be treated a certain way, or vendors that are dependent on you that, you know, you have a relationship with, um, you know, all of this can be uh, negotiated with the, between the buyer and seller and included in the transaction. All right. So when you talk about um, lower middle markets, what does that mean? 
So here in California, uh, what I do is uh, fairly well regulated and I can work on, um, with my license, I can work on transactions up to $30 million. Um, beyond $30 million, uh, you need a securities license. Uh, so you need to be an investment banker, not a business broker or M&A advisor uh, like I am. Um, and within the, uh, the business broker M&A advisor world, there's really two sub-markets. There's the main street, which is what most people think of with business brokers. And these are you know, mostly retail, um, restaurants, bars, auto repair, dry cleaners, heating and air conditioning repair, small distributors, things like that. Um, and then there's the lower middle market. Uh, generally, companies that would sell for between five and uh, thirty million dollars, and um, the reason why that they're really split is because the SBA, an SBA loan, can be at maximum five million dollars. So there's a fair amount of liquidity going after Main Street businesses, which is what most individual people would buy for themselves. Buying yourself a job is the term that's used. Um, in the lower middle market, um, it's harder to find a, a buyer because you're too small to attract most of the private equity or uh, family offices, and you're too big to get an SBA loan. So unless you're willing to lend the buyer through a seller note, a large amount of money, um, it, it's very hard to get a deal done. And um, I like these larger transactions. They're, they're more financial in nature than um, emotional, like a Main Street business. And um, I think that um, because of the lack of liquidity, you know, being a broker in that market, I can add a lot more value. So that's like um, five to thirty million dollars range. Yeah. All right. So going back to tech, what's your favorite um, tech tool that you can't go a day without running your brokerage business? Um. Well, I've tried to be low tech as I do this because I don't want to get lost <laughs> the details of tech and you know really focus in on my clients and the buyers. But I, I mean, I live just live in uh, email. Um, wow. You know, I'm a if somebody emails me and you don't hear from me in 24 hours, um, I didn't get your email because I, you know, I'm on top <laughs> of it. Um, See, so yeah, I use uh, I use a CRM just to keep track of my conversations, and um, you know, I keep track of uh, past buyers. So uh, every buyer, um, you know, signs an NDA. I use DocuSign. Um, it's just easy, and seem everybody seems to know how to use it because it's kind of the standard. But there's other good tools out there too. Um, and then I use a CRM just to keep this track of the paperwork. And um, I tend to kind of, once I get one client in a market, like I've, I've had a number of software companies that are in the e-commerce space. So they have tools like shopping carts and integrations with Shopify. They seem to run in like subsectors. So um, it's helpful, um, you know, if I'm involved in the Shopify ecosystem to say, oh, you know, you looked at this other company I had for sale. Here, I got another slightly different approach to working with Shopify. <laughs> you want to take a look at this software company. So it, it just kind of tracks all of that kind of sector stuff and um, lets me go right back to buyers that I've already talked to and, um, you know, have a good feeling towards. It's um, the screening and filtering out the buyers is really the uh, the most time consuming part of this. And, um, you know, it's why one of the main reasons it took me so long to sell my business is because I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and it's what I spend most of my time doing uh, now, even though I've been doing this for uh, four years now, it's just, you know, you talk to the buyers and um, there's so much about uh, getting, buying a business with no money down. And um, there's all these crazy scams that seem to be going on where people want, you know, they want to look at the uh, tax returns and it, they appear to be a legitimate buyer, but you realize like 
I don't know if they're trying to grab social security numbers or EINs or mm. you know, what, what they're trying to get. Um, but, you know, you really only know until you talk to people and you have to talk to a lot of them to kind of, you know, begin to understand the patterns and what this st stuff looks like. So um, keeping track of these buyers, especially the ones that have kind of passed through my filter and have a gold star and are worth uh, <laughs> working with on potential deals is, um, is where my time goes and the CRM keeps track of that for me. Hmm. All right. So if you could go back to go back in time and tell your younger self one thing about building a business to sell, what would that thing be? Um, you know, when I when I started running the business, um, I didn't think I would sell it. Um, I didn't know it could be sold. Um, if the business is making money, it can be sold. But knowing who would buy it and what they're looking for, I think you know, it's always, I'm a fairly goal oriented person. It's always great knowing what the goal is and working towards the goal rather than um, kind of trying to be everything to everybody. So the um, the different types of buyers and in the lower middle market, there's a, you know, large public corporations, there's private equity and there's family offices. There's also high net worth individuals kind of understanding the dynamics of the different types of buyers and what they look for and how they run their businesses after they acquire them. Um, um, if you know this information, you can kind of narrow in. And if I were going to run my business again and say, Hey, I want to sell into a private equity fund, uh, cause I like what they're doing and the chance to be, you know, work with those kinds of people would be really great for me versus I think this business would be best fit into a family office. Um, because that just seems like home. Um, if I had known that, uh, when I, when I took over the printing business, and could have built in that direction, um, I think I would have uh, saved a lot of uh, uh, frustration and uh, confusion on my part. So kind of knowing where you're going before you start walking is, uh, it's always <laughs> helpful. And, uh, uh, you know, if there are people out there that have profitable businesses, and they're thinking of selling in the next five or, you know, whatever years, and, I, you know, I'm happy to have a 10 minute conversation with anybody and kind of um, point them in the direction that that I think they should go and, uh, you know, kind of the key parts and, uh, you know, stay in touch with them with the hopes of uh, working with them when they're ready to exit. Mm, all right. So, so I, talking about, okay. Yeah. It, I would have, you know, if I would have run across somebody that would have helped me, it would have, uh, it would have made a big impact because, uh, uh, just approaching it from the outside is, uh, it's very confusing and there's so much misinformation out there in the business press. Not that it's, it's not an exciting story to sell that some, you know, oh, I took my business, I earned my living and I sold it. Like, eh, nobody cares. <laughs> if you can put a spin on it and I, you know, I sold it for a hundred times revenue or 50 times earnings and most ice cream shops don't sell for that. Um, you know, that, that all of a sudden is newsworthy and it, it's, it's true, but it's half the story, right? Why, you know, did they buy your ice cream shop to tear it down because they wanted to build an apartment building on your land? You know, you can say you did a real estate transaction or, you can say you uh, you sold your ice cream shop, and it's usually a much more interesting story to say you sold your ice cream shop for that much money. So that that's kind of what goes on out there. Hmm. All right. So you talked about um, a blog post you wrote earlier. You also talked about having a 10-minute call. So if um, listeners want to reach out to you or they want to work with you or they want to learn more from you, read your blog post and everything, how can they do that? Um, so everything I have is on my website. It's davidjacobs, 
davidjacobsbusinessbroker.com. Um, my email is david at davidjacobsbusinessbroker.com. It's really just me. Um, I'm with a firm right now. I'm with a firm called Zoom uh, based in Irvine. Um, and we each do our own marketing. Um, so yeah, if they can uh, visit my website, davidjacobsbusinessbroker.com. All my blog posts are there. Past deals are there. Um, my approach is there. The types of clients I work with are there. Um, if I'm not uh, if I'm not the right guy for you, I'll tell you. If you have a business that uh, seems to be a saleable business, but it's not in an industry that I know anything about, um, you know, I'm I'm with a larger firm and uh, we have lots of guys. I'm one of the youngest guys there, um, so guys have been doing this for 20 and 30 years. Um, you know, I'm happy to make the referral and introduce you to somebody that can help you sell your business. Um, I work with buyers and sellers all over the country. So um, yeah, the website is the great, a great place to get started or just send me an email. I'm happy to set up a call and we can have a quick conversation and see what's going on. Nice. All right. So as we come to the end, is there any, are there any last words you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, you know, it's, it should be, it's stressful to sell your business. Um, but it, it should be a really fun process. It's, uh, it's very fun to start meeting the buyers. And, um, you know, you have this preconceived notion of who you're going to sell your business to and what, what the deal is going to look like based upon what you've, you know, you've read about and heard from your friends. It's not necessarily going to be like that. And I think with the right mindset um, and the curiosity of getting to know people and um, understanding their approach and uh, hearing about people's past success, um, uh, it, it can be a lot of fun and uh, um, a great finale on a, uh, a successful career. So I would, you know, I think approaching the process with the right attitude and, you know, nothing's going to happen. I, it's not my business to sell. I won't be making any decisions for my clients. Um, it's their business. They will, they will sign the papers and they will get the money in their bank account. Um, but just, you know, meeting the buyers and hearing what they have to say and getting to know people and thinking about, um, you know, who am I talking to and where will they take my business and are they the right person? I think uh, could be a fun journey. Mm -hmm. All right. So thank you very much, David, for coming on the Secure Business Podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. It was uh, great to have a conversation with you and uh, get to understand your listeners a little bit more. Yeah. And for the listeners, thank you for listening up to this point. So you've heard it all. If you have a business, you probably want to exit. Don't just shut it down. Figure out how to make it sellable and then sell it. And you've heard I'm sure some of you have gone through the process of try to go through the process. So you know that at the end of the day, business broker is needed to make it faster and simpler for you. So thank you all for being with us up to this point on this episode of the Tech Your Business Show. And till next week, when we come back with another episode, don't forget to keep taking your business. Bye for now. <laughs>